0: Monday nights, 80, for a campaign of 83 consecutive weeks, three, there was a clear winner, this historic war, weeks, this is the story of that campaign, 83 weeks, 20 years later, the time has come, the whole truth, for the whole truth, this is
1: 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff and Conrad Thompson. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm doing great. I'm in Chicago. Um,
0: had a great Ted talk yesterday and I really, really enjoyed that. That was great. Some great speakers there. It was a really fun experience. And I talked about politics and wrestling and how much politics and current media is becoming more and more and more like professional wrestling.
1: Let's get into why we're really here, man, your first year in the WWE. I thought I put some really cool poll topics together, but when I threw this one in there, I thought. I bet that wins and it did. Were you surprised that this won over all the WCW options?
0: No, I'm really not because when you think about it, you know, I mean, look, Nitro over the you know course of the Monday night wars, obviously we had some big beats in there, some big moments that, you know, people want to talk about and remember whether it was the formation of the NWO or the finger of doom or, you know, you name it, you know, Bret Hart, all those things took place during the Monday night wars. But I think, you know, me coming into WC or into WWE, I'm sorry, was probably as shocking of, of a moment as just about anything that probably happened during the Monday Night Wars, you know, other than perhaps Hogan turning heel. Um, it was a big, it was a big damn deal. And it's, it didn't surprise me, really. I, I And I'm glad because I'm actually looking forward to this. This will be a fun flashback.
1: Well, let's, uh, let's get started from the beginning. You made that very surprising WWE debut on the July 15th, 2002 edition of raw. It's hard to believe it's been more than 16 years ago, but before we dive back into that, I feel like we should circle back just very briefly to 2001. It's been very well documented how you were going to try to buy WCW. You thought you had it and then everything sort of fell apart. And after WCW went out of business, you had some free time on your hands. And we've never really talked about this before, but you worked maybe briefly with a group out of Canada that was trying to get a program off the ground called Matt Rats. Can you talk to us about that and tell us what the gist was, what your role was, and ultimately why I didn't really get off the ground?
0: Yeah. I mean, first of all, I didn't really have a role and I I didn't really work with them. I was invited up there by the two principals, and I can't even remember the names anymore. Uh, one of them was, his name was Graham, super good guy. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, they had been working on this idea called Matt Ratz for some time and had really put together a hell of an idea. And it was essentially uh, a very, very young skewing um, kind of, Oh, I don't want to try to compare it to anything that's out there today on the indie scene. But it was a very, very athletic, very high-flying, probably much more like uh, you would see. Pro-wrestling
1: gorilla, maybe?
0: Yeah, I think so. That's a good analogy. Not so much storyline, not so much character-driven as it was athletically driven. A lot of high-flying stuff and things like that. And again, very, very young talent. Uh, Teddy Hart was one, and this was like, you know, now 17 years ago. Teddy Hart, or 16, whatever it is. Uh, Teddy Hart was one of the stars there. And I, that was the first time that I had met him. And their idea was really cool. The venue they had for it was very cool. It, it had very high production values, a lot of music. The audience skewed very young, you know, teen, preteen, you know, early 20s at the latest, kind of an audience. It had what I described as an MTV vibe with it. And and when I saw it, that's the first thing I thought of is, that you know, if MTV was going to produce wrestling, this is what it would look like. Because MTV skewed so young at the time. It still does, I'm sure. So I went up and I took a look at it. And, you know, we had talked about maybe doing something together or me trying to help them get television in the United States. But it just didn't work out. You know, they couldn't really quite get their act together uh, to, to do what needed to be done, to really go and and meet with a network like MTV. So it, it, it was just a meeting, you know, I showed up, they took pictures of me, you know, sitting there with Jason Hervey and that got a lot of press and people just automatically assumed that Jason and I had some kind of vested interest in it, but really it was just a visit and more exploratory than anything.
1: After that, you were approached by a company called battle management. And I believe they represented mixed martial arts fighters who had fought in the UFC, K-1, and Pride. What happened with that? Did you almost get into the MMA business there?
0: No, I mean, Peter Levin, a super, super smart guy. Um, He, I mean, I can't say enough good things about him. Peter's a really brilliant cat. And he had a strong, strong interest in MMA. And he had formed a company... Um, to do just exactly what you said, is to represent MMA fighters in their negotiations with various entities at the time. And keep in mind, K-1 was a big deal. You know, back then, uh, I can't remember the name of the Japanese um, uh, MMA company that eventually was bought. Pride was really big back then. So there was more than one place for these MMA fighters to fight. And many of them uh, didn't really understand how to negotiate or what the market would bear and that type of thing. So Peter's idea – man. Peter used to work for CAA, by the way. He used to work for uh, Bob Ovitz, who was one of the most notorious agents of, of all times, I think, in L.A. And Peter was his right-hand man. And, and Peter was very, very young, but he's so smart. He caught on so fast. So that was Peter's vision. And, I, you know, again, I consulted with them for just a little bit. Um Worked with them on a couple small projects just to help them out and and kind of feel the situation out, but it it just didn't pan out for them. Quite honestly, I didn't. Again, I didn't have anything. You know, I wasn't invested. I wasn't a partner or anything like that. It was just uh, he. Had, Peter had heard about me through uh, Brian Badal actually and Steve Greenberg over at Fusion Media. They all kind of hung out of the same parties. You know, uh, so that's, that's how we became acquainted through, through Brian, Badal and Steve Greenberg at fusion. But, uh, yeah, I spent a little bit of time with him. It's about a summer, I think maybe, maybe a month and a half, two months during the summer. And I'm you know still friends with Peter, like I said, but, uh, that just didn't work out.
1: Well, let's talk about, uh, the 4th of July weekend, 2001. Of course, we're just a handful of days away from the invasion, which is really going to kick into high gear July 9th. That weekend you receive a call from John Taylor, who was an attorney that represented the WWE and said that the WWE wanted to talk to you and asked you if that was okay. And you wrote in your book that you told him that was cool to give you a call. And I believe JR is the first person who wound up calling you. Can you tell us a little bit about that phone call?
0: Yeah, it was, it was short and sweet. <laughs> really? Uh, I could t- look. You know, the, the history between JR and I uh, has been well documented over the years. Uh, JR was b- very bitter, I think, when the whole regime change took place after Bill Watts was fired and uh, Jim got demoted into television syndication, um, which, you know, he, he took very badly. Uh, as a result, Jim wanted to quit. Um, he voiced that to Bill Shaw, who was my direct r- report at that time, the boss. And Bill Shaw came to me and said, what, do you, what should we do? He wants to leave. And my response is, well, then let him leave. You're not going to want to keep him hostage here, as bitter as he is. All he's going to do is make the people around him bitter and miserable. And you're going to have more of the kind of politics and the infighting you know, that we've been trying to get away from. So if he doesn't want to be here, let him go. Well, somehow that evolved into me firing Jim. The fact that I supported the fact that he wanted to resign, got turned around. And I think it was even in Jim's book that I was the one that fired him. And that just wasn't true. But nonetheless, that was the prevailing feeling with Jim. I think he said it often enough that he started to believe it. And, uh, that was, that's kind of where that was at until he called me. And when he did call me, I could tell he wasn't excited about it. There was no, uh, there was no positive energy. He wasn't, he wasn't rude. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't disrespectful, but it was a very matter of fact, unemotional phone call. He he certainly wasn't trying to, to sell me anything. Let's put it that way. And he called and, and he said, Hey, you know, we, we'd like to bring you in. We've, you know think we may have something that could work out and i think he called me on a thursday and i had to come in on a monday or he called me on a friday and i would have had to left you know cody on on sunday in order to make it on monday and it was over the fourth of july weekend and i had probably i don't know 25 30 people coming in from all different parts of the country to hang out with uh, my family over the fourth of july because it's as people probably already know, it's you know my wife's birthday. It's the Fourth of July. My it's the anniversary of my father's passing. It's a number of different kind of big things to our family. <clears throat> it's a bit of a family reunion. So we you know we had all kinds of people coming in, and people make their you know their plans six months or a year in advance. So I wasn't really too excited about taking off. In the middle of the weekend, as people were flying in from all over the country to visit, I thought that would have been kind of rude. But I was open-minded. I thought, well, if it's if it's the right idea, and and you know, if it makes sense, then I'll I'll do it. So I asked Jim. I said, Jim, what what exactly are you thinking? And and I'm sure he wanted to caffey me, and I don't blame him for that at all. I, I respect it, but he just kind of led me to believe that. Nothing was really quite figured out. They were bouncing some ideas around and, you know, just wanted wanted to see if I could make it in for Monday. (laughs) And I, you know, I just said, look, Jim, I, you know, I really appreciate the opportunity and thank you very much for calling. But, you know, I can't do it, you know, on this short of notice. I just can't. And that was it. You know, he he said, OK, great. I'll pass on the information. Click. And I thought, you know, when I hung up, I thought, well, you know, that's the last time I hear from them again. Not, not too many people turn down the WWE and, and get a call back. So that was, uh, yeah, that was the first contact I had with them. And like I said, I had to turn them down.
1: Did you regret turning them down? I mean, at this point, you had to think, you know, wrestling's probably in your rearview mirror. Or am I off base? I mean, did you assume when WCW and the buyout didn't work out and you flirted with the idea of doing something with Matt rats, but nothing really becomes a thing. Did you think wrestling was probably in your rear view and you were just off to do other TV projects from now on?
0: Yeah. And and that's exactly what I was doing, you know, because of the way things went down at Turner, um, money wasn't a really a big concern for me. I, I didn't have any financial pressure, on me to, you know, make a decision or take the first deal that came my way or anything like that. Uh, I had plenty of money in the bank and, and and that wasn't an issue. And, I you know, I knew that I was going to get into other aspects of television and I wasn't too worried about whether or not that would happen. So since, you know, since there was no real creative opportunity or idea that I could sink my teeth into – and I didn't really need the money. I I kind of did think that wrestling was more or less in my rearview mirror, especially when I hung up with Jim. I mean, I really did think. And it, and it wasn't. you know, I wasn't. You know, I didn't regret it or or you know feel bad about it. I just okay. Well, that's the last time I talked to anybody from WWE. Oh well, <laughs> life goes on. Um, but yeah, I did think it was in my rearview mirror for the most part.
1: I do want to ask. You wrote in your book that. JR was was pretty vague. He said things like, "We don't really know if it'll work. It's a short-term deal. Come in, we'll try it. If it works, great. If not, hey, part friends." So he's not really committing to anything. And as you said, probably k him a little. Do you think your answer would have been different? I know you had a whole lot of folks coming. I know you'd been, you know, really celebrating the holiday. I know it's your favorite holiday and it's a, it's a tent pole event, as you would say. I understand. But if you knew it was the invasion, would that have changed anything in your answer? Yeah. yep.
0: Yeah. Look, the reason I turned them down is because nothing Jim said to me on the phone. And again, I want to make this really clear because people tend to hear things, <clears throat> excuse me, the way they want to hear them sometimes. So I'm going to be really clear and redundant I don't blame Jim Ross for not telling me what their idea was right. at all. I would probably not have done it. I, I would have probably taken the same approach if I were in Jim's shoes at that time. Because Jim had no idea what I was going to do with that information. You know, he, he, he just didn't. So I, I get that. But had, to, to your point, had Jim said, well, the, and Jim is quite the salesman. You know that. You sure. know, Jim wants to be a salesman, he can sell his ass off. But if Jim would have had just a little bit of enthusiasm in his voice, just a little bit, I didn't need a lot. I don't need a lot of love, just a little. And if he would have even hinted that there was this plan for an invasion angle, I would have fucking hitchhiked to to, to, to TV. (laughs) You know what I mean? Because I would have felt like, okay, now this can work. This is a big deal. This is not just, oh, let's have Eric showing up pretending he's an ice cream man in the audience and let's see if that works. You know, this was – that would have been a big deal and it would have been one that I could have pulled off very well just given the history and my relationship and all that. It's not that, you know, I'm the greatest performer in the world but it's it was natural, kind of like me and Steve Austin. You know what I mean? It's organic. People will get with it. So yeah, I would have I would have had to apologize to a bunch of people and they would have all understood and they would have had a great time anyway. But yeah, I would have – like I said, I would have hitchhiked to TV if I would have had to to make it
1: by Monday. It's a shame that didn't happen because the whole thing could have looked a lot different, but I understand, you know, the, the position that Jim was in where he's probably not a big Bischoff fan. Well, certainly wasn't, but then on top of that, he doesn't want to let this out. And you once upon a time or the fucking devil for them. So I get it. Um, I do want to bring up that that invasion angle happened right away. And of course it, uh, it dies a fiery death During that time when you see, or were you even watching raw at the time? How did you hear that? Hey man, what I missed out on was the invasion. I really
0: wasn't watching at the time. And it wasn't until God weeks, maybe a month and a half or two that I realized the idea that they were probably not talking about and didn't want to share was that invasion angle. And I and I felt badly. You know, I, I felt, you know, a little bit bad for myself because I really think I could have had... I know I would have had fun. You know what I mean? My head was on straight. I'd already kind of put the WCW thing in my rearview mirror. I mo- mentally, you know, and emotionally had kind of moved on. So there was no anger or resentment or anything like that. I wasn't carrying around any baggage. Let's put it that way. And I know if I would have come in there with feeling the way i felt at that time um i could have made that i mean i know i could have made that really work well and unfortunately what they did was so horrible and didn't work well that i almost felt kind of responsible <laughs> in a way because it was it could have been a great idea it was just executed poorly and you know that would have changed had i known what they wanted to do and and, and i would have made it in and i think it would have i think it could have been a very interesting storyline
1: So let's fast forward. You wrote in your book, I was in Los Angeles in May of oh two, when I got a call from Kevin Nash, he was working for WWE and it was right around this time that WWE changed its name from world wrestling federation. Kevin and I were still pretty good friends though. We hadn't talked in a while. And he said, Hey Eric, there's a rumor going around that you're going to be getting a call from Vince. Would you be interested if he called you? And you said, you didn't believe that would happen, but sure. You'd be interested. And there you go. All of a sudden the rumor mill gets sped up a little bit. Were you surprised that Kevin Nash popped up out of the blue to ask that type of question? I mean, clearly somebody put him up to sort of laying the groundwork. Wouldn't you agree?
0: I would imagine so. Um, I would have done that if I, if I was in, in WWE and I knew that Kevin Nash was friends with Eric Bischoff. Um, I would have asked Kevin to uh, feel the situation out just just you know before Vince picked up the phone and made the call you know I would have liked to know had I been in Vince's shoes I would have liked to know that you know at least there's going to be a warm body on the other end of the line and you know not a cold fish so yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I remember – actually, I remember exactly where I was standing in L.A. I was, in, I was on the Third Street Promenade in Santa Monica. I had an apartment just down the street, you know, one block off the beach. And I kept that apartment there for a couple of years and I was – you know, I was there on business four or five days a week. It was cheaper to, to rent an apartment, believe it or not, than it was to stay in a hotel – so, uh, I was on my way back to my apartment and, um, the weekend was coming up. Lori was, my wife was going to be coming in to Santa Monica for the weekend. And I got the phone call from, from Kevin and I, you know, Kevin, Kevin, Kevin knew. I knew that Kevin knew that it was real. Um, I didn't let myself get too excited or. I didn't overthink it. Let's put it that way. I didn't like build up my defense. I didn't, you know, I wasn't overly excited about it. I, I just thought, okay, great. If this happens, great. It happens. If it doesn't, you know, I'll live to fight another day. It's all good.
1: Well, it does happen. Vince winds up calling you the very next day and, um, whatever you wrote in your book, whatever anxiety or doubt I had Vince eliminated immediately by saying something to the effect of, I would like to think that if the shoe was on the other foot and you had acquired WWE, we would have been able to work together. How did that phrase strike you?
0: You know, I've said this before, because I get I often get get asked. You know, what was that con- that first conversation after everything that went down and the the Monday Night Wars and the lawsuits and me calling them out and you know all the crazy stuff that went on you know and people are naturally curious well what's that first conversation
1: like and looking for a great mother's day or father's day gift idea i was and i found it at paint your life with paint your life you'll get a hand painted portrait created to fit almost any budget and it's a great gift idea for your mother your father or both you say paint your life transforms your photos into a one of a kind beautiful hand painted portrait created by professional artists you upload Anything you can imagine. You can even combine photos. You'll pick the artist, the medium. You can even customize the frame. And you can receive your painting in as little as two weeks. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at PainterLife.com. And there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money's refunded, guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. Get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. To get this special offer, just text the word WEEKS to 87204. That's WEEKS to 87204. Text WEEKS to 87204. Paint Your Life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details.
0: Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook Games. Again, I want to I just want to be careful that I do a good job with this cuz I I want to be accurate as I can be. I wasn't overly excited about it, but I but I but I was really really curious and and I think deep down inside hopeful that's a good way to put it I think deep down inside I was ready and I, and I had enough time had passed between jr's call and almost a year later Vince calling me uh, enough time had passed where I I had even more opportunity to kind of put the past in my rearview mirror and kind of compartmentalize a couple open issues that I had, you know, probably even in 2001 when Jim called me and certainly before that, you know, I was angry about the whole AOL Time Warner thing and the deal falling apart and a host of other things that took place during that period of time, some of which I've still never talked about to this day, just the way things were handled internally. Um, But by the time Vince called me, all that stuff was so far in my rearview mirror that I was beginning to forget about it. I just put it out of my mind and I, and I was deep down inside, hopeful that something could work out because I knew, and I had had time to think about it. I knew that if I went to WWE as a character, and by the way, before Vince even called me, you know, after Kevin gave me the heads up and I had, you know, a day and a night to think about it. Um, I was absolutely positive that they weren't going to call me to come in for any kind of, you know, management role. I knew that that wasn't going to happen. And I knew if they were calling me, the only reason that they would is from for a talent position. And I thought about that overnight, you know, in anticipation of Vince's call, because I I wanted to have a clear handle on where my head was at, should, the, should Vince offer me a gig. And I realized that because of everything that happened at, at WCW, don't get me wrong. I wasn't, I look back at everything now as I'm grateful for everything that happened to me, the good and the bad, because it's all experience. Sometimes people overvalue positive experience and undervalue negative experience. But I I learned far, far more from my mistakes than I ever have from my successes. So I, 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 and that's the way I was looking at things, but I also knew in my heart that I didn't, my, my wrestling story didn't end the way I wanted it to. It didn't end on a high note, in other words. And, and as I thought about that, I was in my office, you know, I knew the call was coming. I was in my office and I was thinking to myself, you know what? This is my opportunity now to finish my book the way I want to finish it. To, to, to add that last chapter to my wrestling history and make sure that that last chapter, whether it lasts six weeks or six months, um, make sure that that last chapter in my wrestling book, not the one I actually wrote, but the, the, the figurative one, uh, ends up on a really, really positive note because I knew if I went there as a talent, the one thing I was in control over was my talent and my ability and how hard I worked and what I put into that. And I... Not to sound like a pompous ass, but I also knew I was pretty good on camera and I had the ability and my head was straight and I knew that I could do a great job there. And I knew I'd be working with a bunch of people that I had never worked with before. And that was another important consideration for me, you know, because I had d- done everything I could possibly do with the cast of characters that were at WCW. Uh, there was no real fresh ideas there for me. Ha- had we purchased it and had everything gone through, I think I probably would not have been on camera. I, I, I kind of played everything out as best I could. Um, but I knew when I got to WWE, if I had gone to WWE, I knew I'd be working with, you know, Steve Austin and The Undertaker and John Cena and Randy Orton and a whole bunch of other guys that I'd never had a chance to work with before. So that was my mindset, waiting for the phone call.
1: So when he calls and he says, you know, I would have liked to think we would have been able to work together. How does that statement strike you? I mean, are you sort of on your heels with the idea that he would just open up with that? Is that something you even thought would be addressed or what was your expectation of that conversation? Like not necessarily from your side, but from his side,
0: you know, I, I didn't have any expectation and, and I think it's just my, my nature, I think is, to keep my expectations pretty low. I, I, I've learned the hard way because I'm a very optimistic – I mean, I'm almost optimistic to a fault. I think I'm capable of doing anything, <laughs> and there are some things that I probably shouldn't try. But, you know, you can't tell me that when I get excited about an idea. I just I, – I always look at the brightest side of any opportunity that, that comes my way. Um, but and I and I've learned over the years to manage that and not let my expectations get too out of whack because it clouds your judgment. And it, it, when you, when you allow your expectations to kind of create emotion and now you're reacting emotionally instead of logically, um, you can make mistakes. And I was aware of my tendency to do that sometimes. So I kept my expectations very low. Uh, but here's the thing, man. And I, I probably won't be able to articulate this as well as I wished I could. But when, when, the phone, when he called and I knew it was him and obviously he's got a very distinctive voice and, you know, and I, I can't remember exactly how everything went, but it was kind of like, hey, Eric, how are you? You know, in that Vince Baritone. And, and, and then he said exactly what I wrote in the book, and if not word for word, pretty damn close. And it wasn't what he said, Conrad. It was the way he said it. It was the exact opposite of my conversation with Jim Ross a year earlier, where Jim was um, indifferent.
1: Dismissive, maybe, yeah.
0: Yeah, indifferent is probably the best way to say it. Vince was so sincere when he said that to me, and it was the first thing that he really said, that I knew the minute he 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 finished his sentence, I knew in my mind I was going to go to work for him. Wow! Because it was just, I mean, I'm, I'm telling you, it was that fast. I was right back to being the guy that was making a decision based on emotions and not logic anymore. You know, I had thought it through. I thought I went through the you know, the logical analysis of the whole opportunity, which is how I ended up with the idea of you know what. If I want to be in control of my own destiny and the way people remember me in professional wrestling, then I want to end that on a high note, which I knew I could do in WWE as a talent. So I had thought through that. I was already pretty prepared to make the decision to go just based on that logic. Um, but when I, again, when, when Vince was so gracious and I used the word elegance because that's really what it was um, – I, I knew as soon as he finished. Went okay, fuck it, I'm going to work for this guy. He, we didn't even talk about ideas or money or anything. You know, I just I knew right then I was going to go to work for him. And we, you know, we talked a little bit more. I didn't ask him, and I didn't ask him what his ideas were. I didn't ask him the role he wanted me to come in. I think he he suggested it to me later on in the conversation. So I had a pretty good idea, you know, what it was they wanted me to do, and I knew that that was a good role for me. Um, the one thing he did ask me, and I thought, well, this this might get me into some trouble with Vince, based on what I had heard about him. He said, uh, "Is there anything you won't do?" <laughs> and, and, and I I paused for a minute because nobody's you know nobody's ever accused me of not wanting to do anything. I mean, if it's I mean, it didn't matter to me. I put myself into some pretty bizarre situations on camera, and if if it makes sense and it Sounds like something that the audience will dig. I'm, I was up for anything, really. But I, I, so I paused and I said, well, and this was true. You know, I, I wanted to be totally honest with them. I didn't want to go into the relationship kind of holding back important things, you know. I said, well, Vince, to tell you the truth, the only thing I won't do is move to Connecticut. You know, I, again, not having a total picture of what they were interested in. Or, and I didn't know if their talent, you know, their peripheral talent, like I refer to people like me, you know, general managers and referees and things like that, you know, if they wanted him to live, you know, near the East Coast or whatever. I had no idea what his expectations were. But when he asked me, you know, is there anything you won't do? I said, yeah, about the only thing I won't do is move to Connecticut. And he just kind of chuckled. He was probably thinking to himself, you fucking clown. I wouldn't ask you to move to Stanford anyway. I, I only want to see you at TV and then I'm done with you is probably what he was thinking when I said that. But um, he just kind of chuckled and said, great. Well, let's let's put the wheels in motion. And then I got another call from John Taylor who I'd you know, come to know and respect and, and like as a as a friend. Um, John Taylor and, and I kind of worked through 99% of it. I gave it to my attorney to finish off and off, off we went.
1: You wrote in your book, it was odd. I was on the phone with him for maybe two minutes and I felt like I'd known him my whole life. It was as if I was talking to an old friend. Is that, I mean, that's not something that we fans hear about a lot, you know, sort of Vince, the charmer Vince, for lack of a better word, the salesman. What do you think it was? that made you feel that way is it just that's what's required to be successful at that level is that unique to vince give me a read on on why you felt that way so quickly
0: i yeah because look i'm a i'm a pretty good judge of character i think i am anyway um occasionally i'm wrong you know as i get older my my percentages are much much better Uh, I, I'm a pretty good read of people generally speaking and keep in mind, I haven't, I hadn't talked to Vince McMahon since I interviewed the broom, you know, (laughs) 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 over a decade earlier. So, and even that conversation was so brief, it really didn't qualify as a conversation. Uh, so I didn't know Vince at all. I knew of him through other people, but I had already made up my mind years before that, that, you know, I don't really care what other people when other people tell me what someone else is like, you know, I listen, but I take it with a grain of salt. You know, you people usually have their own issues or their own agendas, or they're trying to be funny or whatever. A lot of times, pe- people tell you what they think you want to hear. I, I've come across that a lot in my life, you know, especially in wrestling. You know, I'm not going to name names because it's it doesn't serve any purpose right now, but you know, the people who came from the WWE to work for me, you know, told me all kinds of things about Vince McMahon. And uh, of course they're, when they came to WCW and they're trying to endear themselves to the new boss in the new company, um, it's human nature sometimes. And I had learned that, you know, over the years. So I, even though I didn't know Vince and even though I kind of knew of him through other people, I didn't put any credit, not much credibility in any of it. And like I said, when Vince and I had that f- first phone call, my read, which I, I, I trust my own read, even though I'm not right hundred percent, a hundred percent of the time, more often than not I am. And I do trust my, my read of people. My read was this guy's a genuine, he's a good guy. You, you know, he just is. He didn't have to go that far to make me feel as good as he just tried to make me feel. He didn't have to do that. It could have just been a business conversation and, you know, a little bit of lighthearted banner and things would have been fine. But he made sure right off the bat that he wanted to put me at ease. And that's exactly what he did. And I just thought it was classy.
1: What did Mrs. B think about Vince calling and extending the offer? She was there. The ups, the downs, the good, the bad, the ugly, of uh, not just the feud with WWE, but the rise and fall of WCW. And now it feels like it's in your rearview mirror and it had to have taken a toll on you before. What'd she think about all this?
0: You know, Lori has always, always, from the very beginning, when I mean she was twenty-two years old when I met her. And she has always been so supportive of of whatever it is I was doing. And even when she saw some of the darkest periods of time, she had a way to kind of, she was a very positive influence, even during some of the darkest, toughest times. And I think when, again, you know, it was the same for her as it was for me and keep in mind now because, you know, after the the sale fell through and, you know, now two years have gone by. You know, it, it's it's a while now. And my attitude about wrestling and my attitude about what happened had changed quite a bit too. I had just left all that baggage and the bitterness and, you know, resentment. I just, you know, went out and buried it in the backyard one day and that was the end of it. So when when Vince called, or, you know, and I told Lori, I said, look, you know, Nash gave me a shout and suggested that vince is going to be giving me a call you know and she she read me and i was pretty you know like i said i was i was i was measuredly excited about the opportunity just you know to find out what it is you know they called me once before it didn't work out maybe this time there's something good this is going to be interesting so my attitude about it was pretty positive and therefore so was hers so, she wasn't like afraid that I was going to take the job and it was going to end up, you know, screwing me into the dirt again and, and going through a lot of the crap that I had gone through in 90, 98, 99, and 2000. Um, she, was, she was about as positive as I was. And I was, you know, I was feeling good about it.
1: What about your kids? I know that's something we don't ever really talk about, but were they excited that dad might be getting back in the wrestling business? I mean, they were around for some of the rise or. Was it not something that was really anything that mattered to them anymore?
0: Um, no, it mattered. Uh, I, I think especially to Garrett. You know, uh, my, my daughter has never, I mean, she had fun when, you know, she was 8 or 10 or 11, 12 years old in wrestling, when we were in the wrestling business. And we traveled a lot. She went to New Japan as guests of uh, New Japan Pro Wrestling. She went to Tokyo with with my wife and I and and Garrett, so they had a lot of fun experiences, you know, associated with wrestling. But my daughter wasn't like, you know, she wasn't a wrestling fan. Right. She 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 was a she was a fan of everything that it provided, but she wasn't necessarily a big wrestling fan. Garrett, on the other hand, was, and I think for Garrett, he was probably he was pretty excited you know cuz he he missed it and he missed having dad in the business and being associated with it and you know he got to spend a lot of time with a lot of the talent and see things and do things so uh, so yeah i think he was excited
1: so i guess we should mention around this same time and this is a bit of a conspiracy theory but there is a line of thinking that says maybe the reason Vince calls around this time is because down in tennessee the Jarrett family is trying to put together their own promotion and they're reaching out to anybody and everybody from the buff Bagwells to the Scott Steiners, to the Ricky steamboats. They wind up finding some diamonds in there like AJ styles and a handful of others. It's TNA total nonstop action. Do you think that Vince calling had anything at all? The timing of Vince calling had anything at all to do with, with this and the rumors of this new company starting, and maybe he wanted to make sure you were off the market. No, I mean, no, that that's,
0: it's complimentary, I guess, from a conspiracy theorist point of view to think that Vince had enough concern that my value to a new venture with Jerry Jarrett might have some kind of adverse impact on him. Um, that's a that's a very complimentary thing for someone to say, but it's the farthest thing from the truth. I I got offered a job from Jeff and Jerry Jarrett, and I didn't laugh in their face. That's I don't want to suggest. I mean, I laughed to myself, you know. I, when I talked to Jerry, it was more Jerry than Jeff. Um, but I had already had that conversation with them and turned them down. I wasn't I wasn't interested in a moment in in what they were attempting to do. And if you go back, you know, I know we're talking about my first year in WWE, but since you brought this up, keep in mind, you know, what, what Jeff and Jerry, you know, their big business plan, you know, the shifting of the paradigm was to do a weekly pay per view with no television support. You know, for, for like nine ninety nine or ten ninety nine or yeah, whatever it was. Nine ninety no nine, price that's point. right. Yeah. And with no marketing, no television, you know, no nothing. They had, you know, visions of completely changing the way the business model operated. Now, keep in mind, this wasn't this isn't 2018 when you have, you know, video streaming and fight TV and you know all kinds of different ways now to to distribute your content and build an audience like All In did and Coding and the Bucks. This was, you know, 2002 long before any of those opportunities existed. The only real business model back then was weekly television driving your pay-per-view and your and your your live events. Without weekly television in 2002, uh, if Vince McMahon would have lost the, his television in 2002, there would not be a WWE. N- not that we would recognize anyway. So when, Jer- when Jerry Jarrett laid this out to me, and then he kind of told me who was involved, it was like... The Three Stooges and I, you know Jay Hassman, who used to work for me. I knew Jay Hassman was a clown and was incapable of doing anything significant in the world of pay per view. But he was their their hired gun that was going to help them, you know, change the the business model for professional wrestling. I knew it was horseshit when I heard the idea, and and I was polite. I wasn't rude, but I. I was pretty clear that I wasn't even interested in considering it. And I don't think that that had anything to do with Vince wanting to call me or deciding to call me again. I think they had, they knew the brand split needed some heat on it. I think, you know, if you look at everything that was set up by the time I got there, that wasn't a spur of the moment. Hey, let's do this because of Jerry Jarrett. They, they had a pretty good idea of what they wanted to do and why they wanted to do it and why I fit into that plan. And I don't think it had anything to do with their fear of me going to work with Jerry Jarrett.
1: You mentioned Jay Hasman and we haven't really talked about that name on the show before. Is he like 52 years old or so? Would you guess? Is he now? Yeah.
0: god i don't know He looked 52 when he worked for me so i don't i would have a that was 20 some years ago uh, i i don't know how old he is
1: would you guess he lives in the memphis market it wouldn't surprise me okay just asking what well, why why well i did a google search and just looked up jay hasman and there is a jay hasman in memphis tennessee who uh well, he got in trouble for forging court documents where he was trying to hold off creditors. And look, he had a restraining order against creditors for, he could keep his shit because he wasn't paying his bills. And, uh, you know, when you said you started shitting on him, I said, oh, I got to find out more about this guy. So I threw him in my machine. Yeah.
0: Hand. You know, if, and now that you bring that up and I don't know if it's the same Jay Hesman or not, but you, you just, you know, reminded me that there was some pretty sketchy shit that went on at TNA as a result of Jay Hassman, you know, and I'm sure Jeff would know much more about it cause he was directly involved. I just vaguely remembered it. In fact, I completely forgot about it until you mentioned those, um, court issues with the, the Memphis version of Jay Hassman. But he, he, he tried to pull some pretty sketchy things from a financial perspective.
1: You no, know, we haven't talked about the Jarrett's much on the show before, but I hope that we get a chance to, when we talk about TNA, but, we're talking about WWE, so let's keep it going. Let's get back on track here. Uh, at one point you called Vince and you said, Vince, there are leaks in your organization. I'm getting phone calls. I shouldn't be getting from people who shouldn't know that you and I are talking. If we're going to do this, can we do everything in our power to keep it quiet? Don't tell anyone. You don't have to tell. And he agreed. And you even went so far as to fly yourself in and pay for your own hotel, because if it went through company travel, it's out, everybody knows. And he loved that idea. That's a great idea and a great little detail. Uh, who was calling you and, and, and who shouldn't have known that did.
0: Oh, I can't name names. These are people that are still friends of mine, but, um, it just, you know, again, from, you know, and I didn't get a lot of calls. I got one or two calls and my own experience in, in WCW. You know, the minute someone in travel, you know, again, this is not always, you know, nefarious, you know, people trying to undermine or anything like that. But sometimes people just don't realize, you know, they see a name, you know, uh, on a request for an airline ticket. And it's like, oh, look, they're bringing in Eric Bischoff. And somebody hears that or somebody talks about it at lunchtime. And before you know it, you know, 15 people have heard that. And that's when leaks happen. And, you know, they, people don't intentionally mean to undermine or leak information that they shouldn't, but sometimes they do. I've done it. I've made the mistake, you know, and so I, I know it happens, and I wanted to avoid that. And like I said, I was already getting a couple calls from people that really shouldn't have called me, um, and and I, I was determined if, you know, because I knew I wanted to make it work. You know what I mean? I knew this is a big opportunity. I knew what the idea was. I knew the impact it could probably have if we kept it quiet. If it would have leaked and Dave Meltzer would have been reporting it and telling everybody two weeks before we did it how fucking awful it was going to be and how much everybody's going to hate it and how the ratings are probably going to go and gone down. You know, you, you would have preconditioned people to hate something they hadn't even seen yet. And I knew that that was likely to happen. So that's why it was so important to me to keep everything as quiet as possible. And like I said, it was a lot easier for me just to buy my own. I knew where I had to be and when I had to be there. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a big boy. I can get just about anywhere I need to be on time. So uh, he agreed, like I said. And after that, the only people that I talked to was uh, John Taylor, who represented them, obviously, and Stephanie. Um, I started having some, some follow-up calls with Stephanie. You know, just to prepare and get a better idea of what they wanted and, you know, wardrobe. And, you know, I called Stephanie and said, hey, you know, I don't. you guys haven't seen me for a while, but um, I don't have black hair. <laughs> you know, I got long platinum hair, kind of looked like a hubcap. Uh, I said, you want you want my natural color or do you want me to dye my hair? Because, you know, I knew they probably would want me to come in looking as much like the, you know, Monday Night Wars Eric is as I could, um, she said, Oh no, dye your hair, dye your hair. I said, okay, great. Went out and dyed my hair. Didn't really want to, but that's what they wanted. So a couple conversations like that. I think I had one conversation where Stephanie was trying to, to get a feel for me a little bit in in anticipation of what I was going to be like to work with. You know, she called me one day and this was after the, you know, should I dye my hair conversation? She called me one day, and she says, you know, Eric, I just want to warn you. you got a lot of heat here. I mean, not everybody here is going to be happy to see you. And I just laughed. I said, well, fuck, Stephanie, that's nothing new. I mean, I'm pretty used to that. I'm sure it'll be just fine. It'll work out. Don't worry about it. And that was it. You know, and we didn't really have any more conversations. Uh, I didn't talk to Vince anymore after that. I don't think I had too many more conversations with Stephanie, maybe one or two brief ones. And then I was on a plane on my way to New York.
1: Do you think Stephanie was telling you that to discourage you coming in? Was she not a fan because of, you know, the, the perceived old heat?
0: Mm, I didn't get that impression. I, I, uh, and, and I'm not saying it wasn't her motivation, but it's just not the way I took it.
1: feels, uh, feels took, weird for her to call out of the blue like that and say that does it not? Not really. You know, the, the flip side of that
0: is, you know, you don't want a performer coming into a hornet's nest and being blindsided with a bunch of, you know, shitty attitudes, um, You know, now that I think about that just a little bit and analyze it, because I didn't analyze it. You know, I just took it when she called me and said that I just, I took it at face value. I didn't think, God, she's trying to discourage me or, oh my God, there's a bunch of people there that hate my guts. I did not really give a fuck to be honest with you if people hated my guts or not. It didn't. That wasn't why I was going back there. I wasn't going back there to make a bunch of friends. I was going back there to do a great job performing and to put, the period at the end of my sentence the way I wanted it, not the way somebody else did. So I I just didn't care about any of that, which is probably why I didn't think about it too much. But in retrospect, you know, I mean, I got treated so well there that I don't know who she was talking about. If there was somebody there that I had a lot of heat with, I don't know who it was because I didn't get that sense at all. The first day I showed up, it was quite the opposite actually.
1: So, you know, this perceived heat, you know, you've got a lot of heat, Eric. Does anybody ever tell you with who do you ask? Does anything ever happen with that?
0: No, cause I, no, like I said, I just, I didn't really care. It just, it it, 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 was, it was such a non-issue for me that it went in one ear and out the other. Um, I, I don't, I don't know how else to say it, you know, it just didn't matter. It's like somebody saying, well, Eric, you know, it may be kind of rainy when you get here.
1: Sure. Sure.
0: Fuck. I don't wear a raincoat. Right. It's not a big deal. Um, but no, she never told me and I never asked because it just didn't matter.
1: So you, you wind up staying, um, over at the, uh, LaGuardia airport area hotels. And that afternoon, a town car comes and picks you up and takes you to a hotel. That's a little closer to continental airlines arena in New Jersey but still not at the company hotel where all the wrestlers are staying. And at two or three in the afternoon, someone slips a script under your door. And there's two or three pages that they want you to memorize up until that point, you really didn't know exactly what you were going to be doing that night. You had an idea maybe, but talk us through what you're thinking when you see the script. Well,
0: no, we, I I did have a pretty good idea. I mean, I knew I was going to be the new general manager and it was going to be a surprise. I knew I was going to kick off, you know, cutting a big promo. I didn't know what the promo was going to be. And I also knew, you know, and this is the cool thing about this, for me at least. It was such a relief to be just a talent again. And it didn't matter. It, I just didn't care what what the script said. It, it just didn't, I, uh, I know this is so hard to talk about because it's, it's hard sometimes for me to express feelings, but I was so anxious to get out there and pull off the surprise. It was like, I don't care what the script says. I'm going to make it work. I'm going to own it. I'm going to make it work. Whatever they want me to say, I'm going to say, cause now I'm just a talent. I don't have to think about it anymore other than to think about how to do a great job. I don't have to analyze it. It's not my decision as to whether it's a good idea or a bad idea. I don't give a fuck. That's what they're – that's what they – somebody else gets paid for that. My job as a talent is just to perform to the very best of my ability based on what they want me to do. And it was a very liberating feeling for me after everything that I had gone through. And I guess it's part of the reason why – I don't want to make it sound like you know I didn't care. When I say I didn't give a fuck, I don't mean that in a, in a nonchalant, I don't care kind of way, I mean it, I, mean, I mean it in the sense that I was so confident it was going to work, it was irrelevant what the words on the piece of paper really were. I knew I'd make it work. Now, I will tell you, as confident as I was in myself and in the idea. And I was so confident because we we were successful in keeping it a surprise. Had it leaked out, had I started reading about it before we'd done it, I wouldn't have been as confident, and I would have been more concerned about what the words happened to be. But I knew since we kept it a secret, it almost didn't matter. I could have walked out there and just you know drooled, and we would have probably gotten a pretty good reaction. Um, so I, I was feeling great, and they you know. I, I knew the script was coming over. Somebody sent me a, a message saying, hey, you know, script's on its way. Um, they slid it under the door. I opened it up and I went, holy shit, <laughs> that's a lot of copy. <laughs> I, it was more than two or three pages, I think. It was It was the most, it was the longest script I'd ever read, to be honest. And I had to get, you know, I had to get to work because I had to have it memorized, you know, and it was, I don't know. It was a good eight minute promo, I think, or seven or eight minute promo, which is a long time. And it was also really important to me. You got to remember, this is the first time out of the shoot. I knew how WWE was, hearing from other people and and then talking to Stephanie. You know, they wanted it word for word. They didn't want me improvising. They didn't want me ad libbing. They didn't want me kind of sneaking in some of my own stuff. They wanted it word for word, and I knew that you know Kevin Dunn would probably be in the truck following along, you know word for word as he's directing the show. So I thought, okay, if I'm going to impress these guys, I've got to deliver exactly what they want. So my goal at two o'clock in the afternoon, whenever it was, I got the script that I knew I had to be reading in a couple hours on live television. Um, without a net, was to just memorize the script word for word and not miss a beat.
1: So you eventually get, uh, taken over to the building by limo and you hang out outside the arena. And then when you finally pull inside the arena in the back, you don't get out. You're just hanging tight until it's time. And you wrote in your book that a lot of the guys are trying to come over and peek into the limo to see who's in there, because it was still a surprise. Do you remember anybody who was curious besides I'm guessing Steve Lombardi?
0: Oh yeah. Steve Lombardi and, uh, Bruno um, his counterpart. I never even knew Bruno's real name. I just called him Bruno. Um, and he's still there too, by the way. Um, yeah, they came over, especially Steve. You, <laughs> I think Steve didn't realize that I had no problem seeing out. So he would come. You know, he'd be, first of all him Bruno because they were like side, but they they were connected at the hip. You know, usually throughout the night, and. They're, they're, you know, they're both kind of pacing back and forth, you know, about 15 or 20 feet from the limo. and That's how it started. And then the next thing I know, I look out and they're about 10 feet away, kind of passing back and forth and kind of looking over the shoulder, trying to see in. And next thing I know, Lombardi's got his face pressed up against the glass. <laughs> and I could see him clearly, but he couldn't see in. And I felt like a monkey in the zoo. You know what I mean? I felt like I should be doing some kind of trick. So somebody would throw me a peanut. Um, it was bizarre. It was a bizarre experience, but it was fun.
1: I, uh, I read in your book where you wrote, I was smiling so hard. My face hurt. I knew it was going to be big. I knew it was going to get a huge reaction from the crowd. I was excited to get out in that ring again and let it rip just to hear that audience react. It had been a while since you had been able to really do this and perform like this years at this point, since there was really a lot, a packed crowd, a a lot of heat, you're back in wrestling and what a way to come back. Did it meet your expectations?
0: Exceeded them really. Um, There's only been two times in, in my career when actually three, well two because in one of one of those times I wasn't really involved on camera but there's been two times in my career that I've been involved in a scene on a live show where you can literally feel the shock in the audience like you know typically when you go out and you cut a promo you know where the hot spot of the promo is going to be you know where you know where to anticipate people reacting to what you're doing even if you're improving, you know you're you're feeling the crowd and you're kind of reading the room a little bit you know where you know where to go and what to do to make it, to get the reaction you want it's it's like dancing with 15,000 people all at the same time and that's a fun experience but your reactions are almost immediate you know you, you based on what you're doing or saying in this case when when they finally announced me And Vince and I stood there and hugged and he raised my hands up and I was there. It wasn't a mirage on my way down to the ring. And even all the way until I was probably the first minute or two into, into my promo, the audience was stunned. They weren't, there was no heat Now, I mean, there was, I'm sure if you go back and you listen, there was, there was a reaction, but when you're standing there, (coughs) excuse me, in that live crowd, you can feel them differently than you hear them on television. And I remember thinking, wow, we just sucked the, we just sucked the wind right out of their lungs with this. And I knew that they, I, I knew it would take them a minute to kind of go, holy shit, this is really happening. What am I supposed to do? Oh, that's right. I'm supposed to boo. (laughs) You know, it was a delayed response. The only time I, the only other time I've experienced that was in the WWE when I did the Chuck and Billy wedding thing and I pulled the mask off. People were so shocked that the response was a delayed response. You, I could literally feel them like going, (gasps) Oh, you know, like they were sucking the air out of the room for, you know, 30 seconds or 20 seconds, whatever it was, you could feel it. And I felt that same kind of reaction when I first started my promo and when I was making my way out of the ring, people were stunned.
1: I do want to mention, uh, you know, when you're in the, the back of the limo, Vince comes into the limo before you guys go out and sort of lays out what you guys are going to do and give you a bit of a pep talk. And this is maybe 20 minutes before you go out and you wrote in your book, this is the first time you've even seen each other face to face since probably 1990. And he lays out that you know, he wants to do the hug. He says, when you come out, Eric, I want you to give me a big hug. Let's embrace. And he wrote in your book, that was kind of odd because I'd hardly even shaken his hand up until this point. But he was right. It was good heat. And when you get out of the limo, Stephanie's the person who's going to escort you to Gorilla and where you need to be. And she's really trying to prepare you for what's about to happen because she believes that half the locker room is going to want to tear your head off. And on your way to Gorilla, wouldn't you know it, she makes a wrong turn and you accidentally wind up walking right in front of 20 to 25 wrestlers. And you wrote in your book, the look on their faces was priceless. There was shock, there was fear, there was disbelief, there was anger, there was laughter. And he said that Big Show stood up and said he couldn't believe it. What else do you remember about? gazing upon these these wrestlers i mean this is certainly a hell froze over moment for them is it not clearly and i want to back up just a little bit you know to the limo because
0: you know vince vince came out for i think he came to, to the limo first and exactly as you covered it you know we just talked about what we wanted to do and you know how we wanted to lay it out you know the hug of the whole ninety yards he asked me if you know if i had my promo down i assured him that i did and you know that was that was pretty much that and before he left you know he said well, "Are you nervous?" and i i said no i'm excited because i really wasn't nervous and uh, but i was excited you know and and he looked at me like he was shocked to hear that i wasn't nervous like he didn't believe me he thought i was trying to you know hide it or you know not wanting to admit I was nervous. And that wasn't the case. I just wasn't nervous. I was genuinely excited, like a little kid, excited. And that was it. All right, then. See you out there. You know, boom, he left. And shortly after that, Stephanie and Hunter came out to the limo. Hunter didn't say much. Um, Stephanie, you know, she looked at me and she goes, so are you nervous? I said, not really just excited. And she looked at me like you're so, she didn't say it, but I could tell she's looking at me like, you are so full of shit. You've got to be nervous. You know, like I said, she didn't say that. She's always very, you know, she's her father's daughter. She was very elegant. She was very professional. And when I say elegant, I mean the way she carried herself and, you know, talked and things like that. She, you know, she was a real pro. Um, but I could tell she, she wasn't buying it. I think she was expecting me to go out there and piss all over myself. And I, and I wasn't nervous. I knew I had the promo down. I knew that it was going to be a surprise. I knew since the surprise worked, it was going to get a great reaction. So it was nothing really to be nervous about, really. Um, and it, that was it. And then, first of all, I'm not buying that Stephanie took a wrong turn. Are you fucking kidding me? Come on. <laughs> How many times has she worked in that arena? Sure. She knew exact. She walked me past that crowd intentionally. There was, that wasn't an accident in a wrong turn. Uh, That was very fucking intentional. And I knew it when she did it. Um, and I just, I smiled the whole time, you know, and it, you know, the reactions were stunned, you know, a lot of shocked faces, people not knowing how to react. Um, big show did kind of get up and. He looked a little agitated about it. The the looks that I remember the most though are Rick Flair's and Arn Anderson's. And I think Arn more than Rick. There was a genuine, like, are you fucking kidding me? They didn't say it because they didn't have to. (laughs) It was obvious. Uh, but I think Arn even more than
1: Rick. Wow. Well, let's talk about it. I, I think a lot of the uh Smart marks like myself were a little shocked to see that you didn't just walk out and shock everybody instead right before you come out Jonathan Coachman is backstage interviewing Booker T and in the middle of the promo you walk up and the camera gets very close up on his face and we don't quite see you yet but his eyes get really big that gets a huge reaction from the crowd and they pan out and there you are And the crowd is so loud. You can barely even hear what you say to him. And you said something like Booker T so good to see you again, my friend. And I guess there's two schools of thought on this part of me is like, oh, they should have saved that and just let him come out cold. But the other part is, well, maybe they did it just so they could have everybody at home, call their friends and say, man, you're not going to believe this. You got to turn the channel. Is that the thinking here? Yeah.
0: And there's no right answer. You know, there's no right way to do it. Both ways would have been the right way to do it. You know, from a television perspective, you know, if you've never produced television before and you don't know, you know, just how many people happen to change the channel during the commercial break or get up and go get a beer and not come back for 20 minutes or, you know, whatever. I mean, that really happens. And it's happening more and more, you know, as – commercial breaks have gotten longer and longer, um, because the networks are having a harder and harder time making money. Um, it's a real challenge and it's one even back then that, you know, as a producer or a director, you know, you really had to be cognizant of that, that challenge because it, it, over the course of a two hour show, you know, that deterioration during commercial breaks can really, really hurt you. Um, so I understood why they did it, and like I said, there's, you know, there's no right answer. I probably would have done it differently. I would have banked on the surprise. I would have bet on the shock and the buzz that the shock would have created to mitigate whatever audience we may have lost during the commercial breaks. That would have been my own personal way of doing it and my own bet and analysis. But like I said, you know it still worked. Either way, it worked.
1: The promo was strong. You get a huge reaction. As you said, a lot of verbiage there, paragraph after paragraph after paragraph. But once you're done, I guess we should say too, there was a great line where, um, the rumbling beneath your feet is a whole lot of people turning over in their graves. What a great line that is. Um, when your segments done in ring, you have still got more segments on this show you come back through the curtain as Vince pleased with how it came together. How did you feel about it? I was a little
0: pissed off <clears throat> at myself because before I went out there, <clears throat> I dropped the ball on the most fundamental thing that any talent should do almost automatically, which is locate the hard camera. And I didn't do that. So I didn't know which side of the, you know, the, the arena, the hard camera was on. So I was kind of working the whole ring. I was working you know, all four corners of the ring instead of, you know, really working the hard camera and just letting the handhelds find me when they needed me. And if you look back and you watch that promo again, you'll see what I mean. You know, for way too much of that promo, you're looking at the side of my head or the back of my head. And that's because I wasn't working the hard camera the way I should have. So that part of me, you know, that, you know, I don't want to say perfectionist, but the professional part of me was a little disappointed in myself. <clears throat> However, I knew that I nailed the promo. I mean, I, you could feel it. You know, I, I didn't miss a beat in the promo. And, I, and, and not only that, from a performance point of view, and I, I don't want to keep putting myself over from a performance point of view, I knew I'd knocked it out of the park with the exception of the work in the hard camera. Um, but the most important thing to me is I delivered that script exactly the way they wrote it for me. Like I didn't change a word <laughs> it, that that's what I was the most proud of, to be honest.
1: So in the backstage area, we see a series of vignettes. You meet with Ric Flair. Uh, you also meet with uh big show, Johnny, the bull uh, you, you call the rock and leave a message for him that's what we see on camera what happened in real life it god how do
0: i describe it i knew i was on display to a degree that's maybe not the right way to say it um but there was an energy and here's the thing that people probably will have a hard time understanding. I was so impressed with, for example, Linda McMahon, Shane, you know, they both came up and they were both so nice. And I don't mean superficially nice. I've been around way too many people in my life that, you know, are seemingly nice and you know, they're, it's just an act. Linda McMahon was really, really nice. She was so nice. I felt, I started immediately feeling guilty for all the shit that I did to them. It's like, God, I really gave away their finishes. Holy shit. I was starting to feel like a heel because they were so nice and made me feel so welcome. Kevin Dunn, who doesn't necessarily have a reputation for being the warmest, kindest, you know, most fuzzy and gentle person you've ever met, um, really went out of his way to welcome me as best he could. Um, you know, Undertaker, I never met Undertaker before. You know, it's one of the people that I really wanted to meet. And I just, you know, walked up and introduced myself and he couldn't have been more gracious. And, and not, not like, hey, I'm the big dog around here, not not superficial, you know, phony, you know, wrestling. Hey brother. It was just a genuine conversation and my impression. And I, you know, I knew when I saw him, I knew going in, I said, you know, he's the guy, you know, he, he's the, he's, he's the, he's the head of that locker room. So I, I knew walking into there that, you know, one of the first things I had to do was pay those respects. It's just, that's the way you do it. And I, you know, I went looking for him You know, I was walking around by myself there for a while looking, you know, for him and a couple other people that I wanted to say hello to, but him in particular. And I remember I walked up, I don't know, we can't remember who he was talking to at the time, but I, I was standing by, I was waiting for them to kind of finish their conversation. I think they were laying out a match or a promo or something and I didn't want to interrupt. Um, so I waited till they were done. And when they were done, I walked over and introduced myself and said, Hey, Taker, I just want you to know I'm really glad to be here and looking forward to the opportunity. And, you know, he said something equally as, you know, kind, I guess. It wasn't a long conversation. But right off the bat, I knew I didn't have any heat with him. And I figured, okay, if I don't have heat with The Undertaker and I don't have heat with Vince, and if I have heat with Stephanie, she's doing a good job hiding it. And so far, Shane, you know, doesn't have a chip on his shoulder. Linda was as nice as anybody in my own family. Yeah. This isn't going to be so bad. The rest of it will take care of itself,
1: man. What a fun night, you know, I originally, uh, imagined that we would try to cover your first year in the WWE, but I think we're going to take a break right here and make this part one, because this debut is such a big deal. Be sure to tune in next week. Follow Eric on Twitter at ebischof. The show is at 83 Weeks. I am at Hey Hey It's Conrad, and we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here on 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff.
0: John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together,